Welcome to the Elevate Together podcast, voices of change in the business of law. Hello, this is Nicole Giantonio, the head of global marketing at Elevate. The podcast episode you're about to hear is part of our next Normal Leadership Series, featuring Elevate's chairman and CEO, Liam Brown, talking with Rina Sengupta, CEO and creator of FT Innovative Lawyers. Rina and Liam talk about leadership and innovation, today's focus on digital within law, and leading while being human in a period unlike any other. Rina, it's great to speak with you again. Thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure, Liam, as always. I'd like to talk about three things in our conversation today. And really, those three things are how leadership, innovation, and digital weave together. And you are someone who I've known for a you know, sometime you have a unique perspective with your roles leading RSG Consulting, FT Innovative Lawyers Program, and the Digital Legal Exchange. So can we start off by you telling our listeners who you are and how your career has unfolded to lead you to arrive at where you are right at the time of this conversation? It has been a series of fortunate accidents, I think, Liv, as with all things. I certainly did not plan to be where I am now when I was 12 or 15 or 18. So it's all happened serendipitously, actually. So I suppose I've been running RSG for the last 20 years. In fact, we had our 20th anniversary on the 1st of March this year. And before that, I was running Chambers and Partners, the big guides to law firms. I developed that as a ranking guide. It was probably one of the first to really produce a kind of assessment of lawyers. They still use the methodology that I um, developed back then. But I set up my company really, and I had, if I'm being totally honest, Liam, I didn't have a clue about what I really wanted the company to do back in 2001. What I did know is I wanted to do something that was worthwhile and I wanted to do something that was interesting and I knew an awful lot of lawyers. So I did an awful lot of research work and client relationship management work for all the top law firms. And then I ended up having this great idea to rank lawyers on innovation back in 2004, in the days when innovation and lawyers really did not ever go together. Some may argue, does it go together now? But they certainly didn't then. And created the FT Innovative Lawyers Program. So that was back uh, 16 years ago, we launched and, and my business has changed, obviously. And I've got very involved in researching and learning about how the practice of law, the business of law, how basically the legal industry is evolving. And with my company, what we do is we have a huge in-depth research exercise every single year. We do thousands of interviews and we have probably the most unique benchmarks on what people are doing, whether they be in-house, in law companies or in private practice, and also what professional service firms are doing, what business is doing. That gives us a little vantage point. You could say we've got our finger on the pulse of what is happening in the industry. And that's a fantastic place to be. It's a privilege to be there. It's always interesting. And we're just about to sign off our Asia-Pacific shortlists for the FT report at the moment. I'm looking at lawyers doing things that they would never have done 15 years ago, creating blockchain platforms. It would have been inconceivable a while ago. They're able to move markets forward in a way that they never used to. They're taking on roles that just yes, wouldn't have been conceived of when you trained as a lawyer 20 years ago. And that's a wonderful place to be. Rena, I'd like to go to something that you said about moving markets. When you started out in 2004, you could hardly have imagined the impact that your work has had on lawyers getting in touch with their innovative self. You moved a market. 
How did you go about doing that? How did you bring people along? I've got to assume that this in itself was an innovation. So there are two answers to that question. One is an official answer and one is possibly a more truthful answer. I was absolutely passionate about the idea. When you're passionate about things, you become a natural salesperson, just talking about something that you really believe in and then people follow you. How could I have been so sure that it would have worked? I guess it came out of a lot of research that I've been doing for these big law firms when I would go in and talk to the clients of these firms and they were so horribly unhappy with their law firms. I just thought to myself, how on earth could this supplier-driven market continue? And things were changing. You know, The only reason I could set my company up in 2001 was because of this thing called the internet, you know, when you refer to it as the internet. The unofficial version of it was I really, really wanted to do it because I'd been doing this script writing course in Hollywood with Toby Maguire, who played Spider-Man. And I had this vision of my life. I was in my late 30s and I was actually deathly bored of doing all the CRM work, sitting in front of these law firm clients and telling me the same thing over and over again. I just, and I was thinking to myself, you know, this is so boring. So I went off and did the script writing course and was working with people like Ang Lee and all that sort of thing and having a great time, had a red Ford Mustang, drove down Sunset Boulevard every day. And I was really loving it. And then three months into this job, it wasn't getting paid. I was like this intern and I was like 37 or 38. They hired another intern who was 21 years old from UCLA Film School. And I thought to myself, oh my God, actually, am I going to be a penniless writer in Hollywood? Do I actually need to make my work in the legal profession work for me? I'd already had the idea for Innovative Lawyers. And then I had this real kind of passion to make it work. So I thought I'd do six months here because I thought it'd be a little project. And then six months in LA doing writing and stuff like this. And I thought I could do it, be kind of like a program that we'd run for a short while and it would fund what else I wanted to do. Of course, what then happened was I found out that I really loved it and finding out about how lawyers were innovating and how the profession was changing completely re-imbued me. And then it became the monster program that we have today. One of the things that I find really fantastic about you is your level of energy and optimism and sort of put that out into the universe around you. And especially when you're talking about a topic like innovation, where it brings out some really sort of like real passion. There are believers and non-believers. I think you have been one of the sort of, I'll say professional industry or sector-wide leaders shining a light out, showing people that it's okay to try new things and talk about these new things and to not only celebrate them, which is wonderful, but also to be okay about talking about some things haven't worked quite so well. Because when people submit their innovations, you do the kind of like one to 10 ranking. And so there are winners and losers. When you see a firm or an in-house legal team who've really tried and moved somewhere from A to B, although what they're doing may not be cutting edge, the fact is the sheer effort that has been involved and what they have done within their own context has been innovative for them. And I think it's, that's really worthy of celebrating. How do you think about invention, innovation, and improvement? Are they different? Are they, if they are, are they equally important? Are they important in different contexts? Well, I think for all of us as students of innovation, and effectively that's what I became, you know, 16 years ago. I remember doing all this research into definitions of innovation. And when we first started doing our work, in the legal sector on innovation. We couldn't even use the word because it was so open to interpretation. We had to talk about it in terms of value or exceptional value when we were doing our interviews in the early years. I think, you know, the point is about innovation. People get scared about it because, you know, you've got that idea that it's 
got to be about a eureka moment and Archimedes running out of the bath going, I've got it, I've got it. And actually, of course, we know it's not about that. It is about these incremental improvements that you make that add up to something that's highly significant. And there's a great writer called Steve Johnson who always says you can only innovate in the adjacent possible or in the room next door. You can only go from one place to the next place. You can't kind of leapfrog things. It's very rare to be able to do that. So innovation is a sum of all of these steps and they are often kind of little tweaks. And when you unpick all of these innovations, which is something that we find fascinating, I don't know, the etiology of people's innovations, you see that time and time again about how that gets mixed up. You know, Darwin didn't just come up with his theory of evolution. It was painstaking study and detailed concentration and observation of what was happening. You've known many leaders in law. And in some ways, this was, you know, yet another front or demand on leadership. Thank you, Rena. Now we've got to also be innovative. How do the leaders in law ignite innovation in their team? How do they support? How do they sustain it? Are there any common threads or common themes? If you're a new business leader, I've got to assume that's now one of the challenges that comes to mind in 2021. I guess there are three words to them. They're inclusive, they're humble, and they're empowering. It's quite extraordinary. You know, yeah, you're right. Looking at it across the piece, leadership is so incredibly important. And I've known you know, most of the world's big law firm leaders pretty well and a lot of general counsel. And the ones that really stand out and the ones that are really different and the ones that have kind of moved the dial either in their legal teams or in their law firms are ones that are incredibly inclusive. They actually allow or they kind of give the conditions for their people to flourish in and to find their own creativity because it can't be autocratic if you're going to create that innovative culture. Innovation's got to be democratic. It's got to be something that everybody has a part in and also particularly say within a law firm, you know, you've got your t- different practice areas. There are different ways that you're going to innovate within those practice areas. You have different clients. You're going to innovate for them in, in different ways as well. Same with general counsel. They're going to have different types of teams with different footprints in different countries and different business lines. And they've all got to be able to share knowledge because we're also talking about innovation in a knowledge sector. So they've got to be able to share knowledge, allow that to transmit, have ideas going back and forth. Innovation in the legal sector has got to be around knowledge and expertise and you know, things like efficiency, what Elevate does absolutely brilliant. It, it takes the friction out of doing law. I'm interested in your statement. In law, in a knowledge business, it is a democratic process, therefore it's messy. These knowledge businesses really require quite phenomenal leadership. I struggle with having sort of just enough framework because I've got so many colleagues who have so many great ideas, I can't invest in all of the experiments. So I have to try to put some structure and framework around that. But too much structure and framework or too much focus on ROI or to, you know, actually on measurement can cause people to shut down and worry about their reputation. The leader has to set the vision and it's not management and it's something that everyone then buys into. They have to keep repeating that vision and refreshing that vision and making that vision relevant to everybody. You touched on general counsel and how they have to manage business units or geographies, et cetera. What's your sense of the difference for leading in innovation between being a law firm leader and being a general counsel? Do you sense that there is a difference? A GC doesn't have quite the people challenge that a law firm leader does. You know, the law firm leader is running a democracy of partners 
he or she has to lead by consensus, influence, soft power, if you like. That is a different kind of leadership style. A general counsel has got far more of a corporate structure behind them, so they can lead in different ways. But the similarities is they also have soft power in the sense that they are increasingly influencers within the business. They've got the strategic role. They they are the CEO's right-hand person and they're champions of sustainability. They're often called the conscience of the business. And to have that influence within the C-suite, they also need that kind of soft power and that sort of persuasion that a law firm leader would need. But what they don't need is generally within their teams, they don't need to, I think, necessarily be quite so influential. You've got far more of a structure of your assistant GCs, your head of legal ops, the rise of legal ops, they've sort of delegated a lot of the management, you know, the operational management to a different kind of skill set. And that's good for them. Everyone is talking about digital. It takes up about a third of my time personally. Why do you think it's so important to CEOs? And therefore, what from that flows to the importance of it to the law department or the firm? It's a really interesting point. A couple of years ago, I was doing our usual roundtables for the FT Industry Lawyers Programme. I seriously posited with a bunch of people about whether we should rename FT Innovative Lawyers to FT Digital Lawyers, because I thought this is the next thing. We had these focus groups and I thought about it. And a couple of things. One was the brand of the FT Innovative Lawyers Program is established. We didn't want to change it. But equally, question whether becoming digital is actually innovation or is it just about business as usual? This is what you have to do. Would you say because you're adept at using Microsoft Teams? And you've done it very quickly in the last 12 months that that was innovation or is that business as usual? It's an imperative. It's something that everybody has to do. It's sort of part of innovation. The word digital means so many things to other people. It's a bit like how innovation was 16 years ago when we were starting it, which is, what do you mean by it? For a lot of people, it just means the use of technology and data better. For others, it means a whole scale business model transformation. And this is something we talked about a lot in the digital legal exchange, the, the nonprofit that was set up to help legal departments accelerate their digital transformation. And it is surprising, I think, how many people have misconceptions of what it is. In the last 12 months, 2 billion people overnight became digital. It is absolutely amazing what we've just gone through in the last 12 months. But what it has been, it's about everyone becoming digital. How do the customers of a business behave? How do they buy or explore or research or engage with you as a business differently. And I think that is, for me, a real driver for this digital imperative. And I do consider that, if not business model transformation, it's business model evolution. How do people buy and engage and have a relationship with your company? It's causing CEOs to say, we have to at least evolve, if not transform our business to embrace digital ways of connecting or options, at minimum, digital options. I am a believer that there is a time to call up the travel agent for that fantastic trip around the world and another time to be able to actually book the flight specifically online in minutes from your iPhone. And I use those as extremes, I know, but there's still a place for people, relationships, expertise, etc. that's necessary, but not sufficient as you also need to be able to engage buyers, customers digitally. And I think that is driving CEOs to pull conversations with their business functions, including legal, to operate at that speed. How optimistic or confident are you that law departments are going to be able to keep up with or catch up with, and in some cases even lead this operating digitally and innovating digitally at the speed of the rest of the business? Keeping up with the pace of the business is really tough, and it's just got faster. Only two out of 10 legal departments are actually digitally enabled enough to support their companies. 
But when they are, they enable projects 65% more likely to land on time. The impact of a corporate legal department being digital on the business is huge, on the top line and the bottom line. I don't think they have a choice. They're part of the business, so they have to keep up. You've got legal departments that are digitizing in pockets who are doing phenomenal things. The efficiency gains are dramatic when you digitize contracting or you digitize IP. It's And it's leaps and bounds that's going on at the moment, actually. This is not the slow pace of innovation that we've seen for the previous years. So I think they will get there, partly because they have to get there and partly because you've got really pretty sensible teams in, in these major sort of corporate functions. I think a lot of the push, though, isn't necessarily coming from the GC. A lot of the push is coming from the CPOs, the CIOs, the CTOs, CFOs. That's what I mean. It's like they're sort of being pushed on all sides. I mean, what fascinates me when in our program, we'll rate a department, say three or four years ago, it's done a huge initiative. It's very difficult to sustain that initiative because we talk to the GCs every single year and we say, well, what's happened to that initiative that you did? And they'll say, well, actually, it's been unwound or it's fallen by the wayside. There was an experimentation in the last, say, five years, digitizing workflows. And even within a law department, digitizing different workflows. The challenge with that, and if you compare that to the activities around digitizing HR or people or digitizing the finance organization or the accounting organization. The challenge with that has been similar lessons are being learned in the law department as were learned in those other functions in that you can digitize workflows or the term we use jobs to be done, but then you have data in silos. And until that data is actually able to flow back and forth between other functions and other digital workflows, these pools of data lose their value. It's relevant to the commercial contracting leader to be able to have insight into transaction velocity or contracting velocity or even the simplification and ease of doing business on contracting. That's relevant to you know which clauses do you include or your negotiating positions do you start from. All of that's very interesting and going digital right now in law departments. That's kind of not that interesting to the rest of the business. It starts to get more interesting when the salesperson can actually, from their dashboard of operating in their CRM, be able to get to contracting close without having to think about legal as much as they had to before. Because now the digital legal department is actually interwoven, I call it law in the core, is interwoven into the business process. If I can use that term of getting a customer to agree to buy something from you. That's going to be one of the next challenges for law departments is these different silos of data needs to be woven together, but also woven into and back and forth with the other corporate systems around data. And going back to the interdisciplinary piece, I think that's going to be interdisciplinary. I think step one was you brought along legal ops. Step two will be automating and digitizing workflows. Step three will be going, oh, actually, you know, I can't just stay within the law department. I need to be integrating and partnering with uh, business professionals and business partners in the rest of the core of the business. And sometimes that will mean unwinding some of the experiments or work done in version 1.0 of becoming a digital law department. Let's bring it a bit closer to home. This has been a year. You're a business leader, a human being being a business leader. What does leadership in a, a tough year actually meant, either in terms of what you've learned about yourself or about being a leader or in what you think you need to develop for the next tough time. Leadership in tough times requires dot, dot, dot. Just let that marinate in the back of your 
mind for a second. I'll ask you another question and I'll just let your subconscious work on that. Have you had any experience in mentoring, either being mentored or mentoring people? Yes. How was that? And then we'll go back to that last fine closing question. I did the Mayor Campbell Elements coaching program and so have coached people, been coached and also mentored in the business. I run a small company, so my management style is far more one of a mentor. And it's been overall quite good. It's difficult to do though, because you know there are sometimes you just want to say, just do it. Just do that and get that to me by tomorrow. On the leadership question, for me, I think it's been a fascinating year. And as you know, Liam, I also had a little battle with cancer, COVID. I have a business and a large part of it is events related, in-person events. So it's been a, you know, a pivot, pivot, pivot. And I think it's really, really funny because I had to give up my office in December. We decided to give it up and uh, we were on this trajectory to just keep expanding, keep expanding. And I remember I had this moment looking at the removal van full of these most beautiful desks that I had bought about five or six years ago. And they're like real Silicon Valley desks and they're all white and heavy and big and, and they're so fancy. And I, I remember thinking, I've made it now. I'm a proper business now because I can afford decent desks. I've got this bricks and mortar. I've got this stability and solidity. And actually what I've learned about leadership this year and company resilience and all the rest of it is that the biggest asset that we've had has been able to pivot just like that, to pivot on a dime in a second and go, actually, this is a hell of a shit show. Things are going down the swanee, but how can we make the most of it? How can we take this into being an opportunity? And so what we did with our awards events, for example, we said, let's stop doing awards. Let's just not do so many awards. I just said, let's stop doing them. Let's make them into thought leadership programs. We'll make them into shows. We'll celebrate what people are doing in this time of crisis. And so we cut that down. The industry really liked it. And I think that way of thinking is what leaders have to do. People talk about sustainability all the time and sort of keeping going. It's not keeping going. It's just knowing when to go. It's not working anymore. Get rid of it. That's not going to work. And being able to sort of see ahead and say, actually, this is going to take longer for the world to come back. So, you know, we're not doing in-person events again this year. That's what I've learned. It's just, you've got to not be scared to chuck things out and also just to go, what is value? What is the most valuable thing we do? And what do we love doing? Because I realized actually we were going off on this trajectory with my company. It was just getting bigger and bigger and we were adding more and more business lines to it. And I was thinking, but I turned into a kind of manager, an operational manager, and actually the quotient of things that I wanted to do was very small. So I was probably becoming less of a decent leader. Really, what I heard there, interestingly, is closing the loop on what you started out by talking around. So you've continued to innovate and you've continued to innovate, definitely nudged by sort of exogenous outside factors, but you've continued to innovate around what you're passionate about. I might reflect on that myself. Um, (laughs) Reno, this has been fantastic. As always, fun conversation. I look forward to being able to see you again in person. And thank you for spending the time with me and all of our listeners. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Liam. Tune in to the next episode of the Elevate Together podcast. Available on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and elevateservices.com.